Welcome to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. We hope and pray this message challenges and inspires you to live out God's truth in your life. Today as we continue our series through the book of Genesis entitled Bold, we come to a popular story, in fact one of my favorite stories as a child, and that's the story of Noah's Ark in Genesis chapter 6. Now, even if you did not grow up in a church, chances are you've probably heard the story, or at least you're vaguely familiar with the story. So to begin our time together in Genesis chapter 6, I've actually borrowed my daughter's Bible story book, and I want us to be reminded of how we probably first heard this story. Noah's Ark, Genesis 6 through 9. After Adam and Eve left the garden, many people were born. And the people kept doing bad things, and they forgot about God. Except for Noah. Noah loved God. And God was sad that everyone but Noah forgot about him. And he told Noah about his plan to start over. Make yourself an ark, God said. And here's how. So Noah and his family began working on the ark. And as you know the story... Uh, he, God said, get in the ark and take two of every kind of animal with you. So Noah did that. And then it began to rain and rain and rain and the waters rose and Noah and his family and two of every kind of animal were in the ark. And finally, when the rain stopped, water covered everything, but Noah and his family were safe on the ark. And then Noah sent out a dove to find land and a week later, Um, uh, He sent the dove out again because it didn't find land. And finally, it brings back an olive leaf. And Noah rejoices because he says, it must have found land. And then the ark finally came to rest on top of a mountain. And God told Noah to leave the ark. And God and his family praised God. And God put a beautiful rainbow in the sky. And it was a sign of his promise to never flood the whole earth again. Now, raise your hand if you've heard that story before growing up. And this is probably the iconic image that is burned into your mind. That's a, it's a pretty good story. It has a happy ending, right? Because there's animals and rainbows and, and everything ends, ends good. But about a year ago, a movie was made about this story. And I can't remember anything else in recent history um, that has come out of Hollywood that has stirred as much controversy among everyone than this movie Noah. Christians were mad because they said, oh, it doesn't depict the actual story of Noah. I don't know, I didn't see it, so I don't know if that's accurate or not. But I will say, why would we, as the church, expect Hollywood to get it right? You know, we get so mad and we, we get our, our, our drawers wadded up and we're like, ah! and we take to social media, don't expect them to get it right, and you won't be so upset about it when they don't get it right. Um, But then people who don't even believe in God or people who are against the church got really upset about the story. And there was one uh, late-night talk show host that even took off on a rant talking about the movie, and he said, my biggest problem with the movie is that it's based on a lie. And he starts going off on God. And I don't know how anyone who doesn't believe in God could have a problem with God. 
but he calls God a psychotic mass murderer who gets away with it and a merciless monster. You can read other blog posts, other news articles and movie reviews, and you see that this movie hit some buttons with people. People saying things like, God comes across as vindictive, impatient, quick-tempered, and a bloodthirsty deity. What was clear that this movie did was it caused a lot of people to spew a lot of theological misunderstandings about who God is. So as we continue our series of bold, I want us to go back to the actual story that we know is true. And I believe that in this story, we can find three, probably a lot more, but at least three bold truths about God. Three bold truths that'll help us understand God and who we are and who God has created us to be. Now, one of the definitions of bold is this. It is, it is beyond the usual limits of conventional thought or action. Beyond the usual limits of conventional thought or action. See, the world thinks one thing about God when they hear this story. God reveals himself through scripture for who God really is. And it's pretty important that we understand who God is. Why our pastor says all the time that if you get Jesus right, you'll get everything else in life right. Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I am the Father and one. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And misunderstandings about God, who he is, about God's nature, about God's love, about God's justice, about all these things, misunderstandings about that have led people down the wrong roads in life. So let's look at the text itself in Genesis chapter six. It says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal and their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Two weeks ago, Chuck talked about Adam and Eve how God had created man perfect, the, the prize of his creation, said you can do anything you want, just don't do this one thing, and man and woman chose to sin against God. And then last week he talked about Cain and Abel, the first murder recorded in scripture. Some generations later we see how evil the world had become. It says the sons of God are those who profess religion, those who are faithful to God, married daughters of men are strangers of God and godliness. It says that they ignored God. They began to choose 
who they would marry. They began to make choices based on the eye, whatever looked good to them. They began to live based on what they desired, what they wanted. It says the men of renown, those who were famous, used their position to promote themselves, oppress others. And every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Many would read this and say, big deal. They lived how they wanted to live. They enjoyed life. They married who they wanted to marry. They married those who would make them happy. They chose their, their, who they would marry based on what was pleasing to the eye. They lived for what felt good for them. What's the big deal? As long as they're not hurting anyone else. Do y'all hear that nowadays? What is the big deal with sin anyways? Well, conventional thought is this. Conventional thought is sin is not a big deal. The first bold truth we see in scripture is this, that sin is a problem that can't be ignored. And I encourage you to write these down. And uh, if you don't want to write them down, follow along in the Sugar Hill app and the notes are in there. Because I don't want us to miss these foundational truths. Sin is a big deal. It's a problem and it can't be ignored. Many people in our society and even many people in our church today would choose to ignore the issue of sin, not even deal with it. If I don't think about it, then, then how is it even a problem in my life? Recently, I was talking with someone and they said, um, you know, the doctor wants me to come in for some tests. And I said, okay. And they said, well, I'm not going. I said, why are you not going? Because I'm scared of what the results may be. I fear I might have cancer and I'd rather just not know about it. And I said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If you got cancer and it's a problem and it's killing you, that's a big deal. And why don't you go to the very one who can help you address it instead of ignore it and try to pretend it doesn't exist? The same is true for sin in our life. Sin is a big deal. And it should be a big deal to us. Why? Because sin is a big deal to God. It says that man's sin grieved the heart of God. The New Living Translation says it broke the heart of God. So how does God respond? God's heart is broken because of man's sin. And in verse 7, it says, So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. That's some strong language right there. I regret that I've made man, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why is sin a big deal? Sin is a big deal because it is the very antithesis of God's nature. Well, what is God's nature? I think in verse seven and eight here, we see a pretty good snapshot, a pretty good look at the nature of God. There's four things I think we see in these verses about the nature of God that are consistent throughout all of Scripture. Number one, because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. Because God is holy, he can't tolerate sin. God's holiness demands separation. Psalm 5.4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you like oil and water they don't mix god's holiness and sin 
What's the big deal about sin? Sin's a big deal because it separates us from God. It separated man from God in the garden, and sin continues to separate. Because God is holy, he can't tolerate sin. But because God is love, he is grieved when his children turn their back on him. That verse, that the heart of God was broken, man, that captured me. I didn't know what to do with that. Man's sin, my sin, breaks the heart of God. And where God's holiness demands separation, God's love demands restoration. In James 4.4, 4, it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We're told that man cannot serve two masters for either love the one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. As a father, God is grieved when his children turn their back on him. Some of y'all, I know your story. You've talked to me personally. Some of you parents have had children who have been rebellious. And you grieve. You cry yourself to sleep at night over the decisions of your children. That is the heart of God towards us when we sin. Why? Because he loves us. It breaks his heart. I never got this until I became a parent. But I used to think, growing up, you know what, there sure are a lot of rules in the Bible. I have a lot of teenagers tell me all the time, it just seems like God wants to spoil our fun with all these rules. Then I say, man, if you think that this is a rule book, you don't get God and you don't get his word. This is a love letter that he's given us because he loves us. And he has come that we might have life and life abundantly. And this is a manual and instruction book of how to experience God's best for your life. When I became a parent, I got it. I hated rules as a kid. But now I have children say, Daddy, can I go outside and play? And I say, yes, you can go outside and play. But here's your boundaries. When they cross those boundaries, I get upset. Why? Because I know those boundaries are there to protect them. And I love them and I want what's best for them. When I was in high school, I don't know why my sister trusted me, but she did trust me to babysit my little nephew. And I was in the front yard, and I was playing soccer with him. And I got thirsty, so I go inside to get something to drink and leave him in the yard, um, kicking a soccer ball. And when I walked by a big picture window that we had in our house, my heart stopped because I noticed he had kicked the ball. It rolled into the street, and he was taking steps to go get the ball we lived on a curve, but from my perspective, I could also see a car rounding the curve at the same time. My heart stopped. Why? Because I could see something he couldn't see, and I loved him, and I cherished him, and I wanted what is best for him. And God would say to us, sin ruins, sin destroys. I love you. Stop. It breaks the heart of God. Why is sin such a big deal? Sin's a big deal because it hurts, because it enslaves, because it, it destroys. Sin blinds us from the truth, and an all-loving heavenly father is grieved when his children sin. Because God is just, he must deal with sin. God's justice demands a payment 
for sin. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Romans 3, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Why is sin a big deal? Sin is a big deal because it is costly. It is costly. Some of us sitting in here are living with physical scars that are a reminder that sin is costly. Some of us are living with emotional baggage and guilt and regret and pain. Why? Because sin is costly and certainly the payment, the restitution of sin costs dearly for the wages of sin is death. Sin is a big deal because it's costly. But finally, what we see about God in these verses too is that because God is merciful, he offers a way of salvation. God's mercy offers grace. Well, some would say, Trip, that sounds good, but I don't see a whole lot of grace so far in this story. God's heartbroken over man's sin, and God says, I'm going to wipe him off the planet. Where is the grace here? I think it's important for us to realize something that Chuck brought up in the story of Cain last week, that God offers mercy before judgment. This is the second big truth we're about to see in this story. God offers mercy before judgment. Conventional thought in looking at this story is the flood's not fair. How could God do that? How could a loving God kill all those people? You know what I've come to realize in life? I don't want fair. I don't want fair because the wages of sin is death. And the horrible reality is that to sin even one time against God warrants eternal condemnation. People talking about they want fair. I don't want fair. You know what I want? I want grace. That's what I want. One of my favorite lines of any song ever from the great theologians, Reliant K, a band, and they say, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. God's process is always mercy before judgment. Now, we as Christians, man, we get this wrong a lot. We get this wrong a lot. One thing that amazes me sometimes is that we, as followers of Jesus, get mad when lost people act like lost people. And man, we'll take to social media, we'll blast people, we're pointing out that I can't believe you, you're making those choices, I can't believe you think that way. Or, guess what? Lost people should act like lost people. And people who have been redeemed and put their faith in Christ, who are followers of Jesus, should act like followers of Jesus. And we're so quick to bring the judgment without the mercy. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God's process was always mercy before judgment. Cain, as Chuck pointed out last week, the story of Jonah, Jericho, Sodom, and Gomorrah. It was always mercy before judgment. How about the New Testament? Look at Jesus himself. It was always mercy before judgment. Look at the woman at the well. Look at the woman called in adultery. As Jesus interacted with people who had a problem with sin, he would always love them before he spoke truth of their sin into their life. Mercy always precedes judgment. That's God's process. During the construction of the ark, approximately 120 years, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. In 2 Peter 2.5, it says this, 
And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. For Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Mercy always precedes judgment. People read the story and they say, how could God kill all those people? I think you answer that the same way you answer, how could a loving God send people to hell? And that's this. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell when they make a decision to reject God's grace. Matthew Henry said it like this. None are punished by the justice of God, but those who hate to be reformed by the grace of God. And in this story, we see the result of God's mercy being displayed in the one family that chose to follow and chose to obey God. In this story, grace came in the shape of an ark. Today, grace comes in the shape of a cross. See, in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, we see the only means of man's salvation. We had already talked about the tension between God's grace and God, or God's justice and God's love. Because God's holiness demands separation from sin. God's love demands restoration for sin. God's justice demands payment for sin. And God ultimately dealt with the issue of sin in the person of Jesus by coming to earth in the flesh fully representing man as a man, paying the payment that was due that we could not afford. But Jesus being spotless, being perfect with all the resources of heaven, said, I'll take the punishment I don't deserve because you don't have the resources to pay it. That was God's grace and God's mercy to the earth. In Noah's day, it came in the form and in the shape of an ark. God always offers mercy before judgment. I was sharing a while back with someone the good news of the gospel, of how Jesus really is the only one that could satisfy the requirements of payment for our sin. And he looked at me with wonder on his face and he said, that's ingenious. I said, it really is. He said, how ingenious of God to come up with a plan to maintain his holiness, to maintain being a righteous judge, but yet also a loving father that would call us to him and would take the punishment himself. He completely satisfied all the requirements of what that debt needed to be and how it needed to be paid. I thought, you know what? Do I live every day with the same wonder of how ingenious that plan is? Now, we can't ignore the fact of judgment just because the offer of mercy comes first. Scripture is very clear that this world will still be judged. One day there will be a judgment at the great white throne we see in Revelation chapter 20, a day where those will be separated, those whose name is not in the Lamb's book of life because they've not put their faith and trust in Christ, will be cast away for eternal punishment. 
We're told of the judgment seat of Christ where all believers will appear before the throne of God and we'll give an account for everything that we've done. Not to be punished, but to be rewarded for how we've rightly represented Christ to the world. These are facts in scripture that we can't get away from. But what I would challenge us to do today is to not live in fear of judgment, but to live in light of grace. Don't be motivated for fear of judgment. Oh, I got to do things just right because you know what? A day's coming and God's going to drop the hammer on me. If we rightly understand grace, if we rightly understand the mercy that comes before judgment, we won't have to be motivated by fear. We'll be motivated by grace. Well, how does that work? When I was a child and when I was immature, my dad said, here's the rules. You break the rules, you'll be punished. And when I was a child and when I didn't really understand much, I didn't want to break the rules because I didn't want to get a whooping. When I was a little bit older, I I didn't want to break the rules because I didn't want to be grounded. I didn't want to have my stuff taken away from me. I feared the consequences when I became older and I began to understand why my father would punish me. You know what I began to care about more than the punishment? Breaking the heart of my dad. You know what was a bigger punishment for me? Seeing my father look at me in those, with those eyes, knowing that he might be disappointed in me. As followers of Jesus, if we live in light of grace, you know what? That motivates us to holiness. Just as God's love demands restoration, that love demands holiness. You know, it's interesting that although we see God grieve that he created mankind, we never see him grieve that he redeemed mankind. The benefits of redemption, our sins are forgiven, our relationship is restored, fellowship is restored, we're free from the power of sin, and we're invited to join God in his mercy-giving plan. The last truth that we see here is that Noah realized this exact point. That is this. God uses those with bold faith to accomplish his mercy-giving plan. In verse 9, we see, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, And the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark. Now Bobby's really going to get into this story next week. But conventional thought is my story, my everyday life, my story really isn't connected to God's story. God's about to blow Noah away with the realization that God uses those with a bold faith to accomplish his mercy-giving plan. Now, by all accounts, Noah wasn't trying to be picked. He was looking to God. He walked faithfully with God. Can you imagine the human pressure he felt in his day? But by walking with God, he lived a bold life. And as he honored God, God blessed him and God blessed his family. And God chose him to be a part of his mercy-giving plan 
to save humanity. See, God honored his faithfulness. God honored his bold living. Well, how do I live boldly? Bold living is fueled by bold faith. And bold faith is only truly demonstrated by active obedience. God came to Noah and said, Noah, here's my plan. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick up a saw. And I want you to pick up a hammer in a dry land. And I want you to be obedient to what I'm about to tell you. Last week, we heard Juliana Quadra share an amazing story. Just like Noah took a step of obedience. And there was nothing glamorous about picking up a saw. But God used that step of obedience to literally change the world. Juliana realized in her story, she thought, oh, I don't have much worth. God can't really use me. What's God going to do through me? And she took a step of faith, and she loved on a little girl. Three hours later, that little girl gave her life to Jesus, and the little girl's mom gave her life to Jesus too at our beach camp two weeks ago. See, Juliana realized something that, Mo, that Noah would later realize, and that's this. Our story and God's purposes intersect at the point of obedience. Y'all catch that? Our story, our everyday life, and God's purposes, God's plan, our lower story and God's upper story intersect at the point of obedience. I first realized this. I just graduated high school, and our youth group was coming to Atlanta to a Braves game, and we stopped on the way at a Shoney's to eat dinner. And um, when I was sitting there, we all go in and sit down, and our waitress comes to take our order. And clear as day, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, Tripp, I want you to share the good news of the gospel with this lady. But God, we in Shoney's. What? I want you to share the good news of the gospel with this lady right here. Well, that that don't make no sense. (sighs) All right. And I just come from a camp, and everyone who's ever been to a summer camp or a VBS growing up, y'all have one of these little bracelets with the beads on it and the colors. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I have one of those, and it represented the the gospel. And she came up. I said, "Uh, hey, you know, my name is this. She told me her name. And I said, I just came from a camp. We made these bracelets, and this bracelet represents the greatest story ever told. Would you like to hear it? She said, yep. Ah, here we go. And in about 10.2 seconds, I ran through the colors on the bead. I said, I was obedient. I did my deal. And she looked at me and said, okay. And I looked at her and I said, "Um, okay. Uh, Can I have a Dr. Pepper, please? And she went to get the drinks, and I felt really convicted the greatest story ever I I, I really didn't do justice and when she came back I said ma'am I'm sorry I told you this was the greatest story ever I flew through it and I'd like to share with you how this greatest story affected this right here and changed my life would you like to hear more and she freaked me out she sat down in the booth next to me so I'm like okay this is getting weird okay And so I started talking to her, and I share the greatest story ever with her. And I share that, you know what, sin's a big deal because it separates, but mercy always comes before judgment. And mercy has come to us in the shape of a cross and the person of Jesus. And if we would put our hope and faith in him, we can be saved. 
I said, would you like to trust Jesus? And she looked at me and she began to cry. And she said, yes, I would. And I said, right here? She said, right here. Right now? Right now. And she prayed one of the most beautiful prayers I've ever heard in my life as she gave her life to Jesus. And she looked at me and she said something I'll never forget. Tears streaming down her face. She said, you don't know this, but for the past three months, I've been lying in bed at night, crying out to God, saying, God, I believe you're out there and I believe you love me. I just don't know how to get to you. Would you please send somebody to simply tell me how I can get to you? She said, what you don't know is you're that person I prayed for for three months. And in that moment, I realized in obedience, my story and God's story intersects. And God wants to use me and God wants to use you to be a part of his mercy giving plan to this world. The question today is this. What is your saw? What is it God would have you pick up? What is that one step of obedience that God would have you do? And when you do what you can do in obedience to God, then allow him to do what you can't do. See, God's inviting us all into his story. Is sin a big deal? Yes, sin's a big deal. We can't ignore it. We gotta deal with it. The good news is that mercy comes before judgment. Not only in our lives, but God wants to use us to let the world know the beauty of that truth. Let's bow our heads together. Father God, my prayer today, Lord, that you will convict us of sin in our lives, that we won't ignore it, that we will deal with it. God, that we will approach you not just in shame, not with our head down, but approach you as a loving father who wants to scoop us up in his arms and sit us in his lap and tell us that he loves us. God, may we come to the only one who can truly deal with our sin and may we lay it before you. And God, today may people in this room receive forgiveness and grace for their sin. God, may we resolve to live a life that is holy because you are holy because we wanna honor you, because we wanna please you, because we wanna experience the best life ever that you have come to give us. God, if there's one here today that has never experienced that grace through the cross of Jesus, may today they put their hope and their faith in you and begin that love, mercy-giving relationship with you today. Father, for those of us in here that know you, May you show us very clearly what our Saul would be. God, what is our act of obedience today that you would have us to do as we join you in your mercy-giving plan to the world? Father, speak to us and may we respond clearly and boldly in obedience to you. In the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. For more information and to find out more about our church, please visit us at sugarhillchurch.com.